You're listening to Secrets of Data Analytics Leaders. You know, what we have to first understand is what's the front end of the architecture. So the back end is the analytic systems, and we know how to do that, but we're going to have to learn some new tricks. On the front end is something called the edge, and that's where the devices are. That's where the utility poles and smart buildings and the trucks and all the airplanes and things are out there, the the wind turbines, they're out in the wild. Welcome to the Secrets of Analytic Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Eckerson. The theme of our show today is the Internet of Things, or IoT, as the Cognoscenti call it. IoT has created a tidal wave that data-savvy organizations can turn into profitable business solutions. Most IoT data comes from sensors, which are now attached to almost every device imaginable, from factory floor machines and agricultural fields to your cell phone and toothbrush. But IoT is forcing companies to rethink their data architectures to ingest, process, and analyzing streaming data in real time. To help us understand the impact of IoT on data architectures, we have with us today Dan Graham. Dan is a former product marketing manager at both IBM and Teradata, renowned for combining deep technical knowledge with industry marketing savvy. During his tenure at those companies, he was responsible for MPP data management systems, data warehouses and data lakes, and most recently, the Internet of Things. Welcome back to our show, Dan. Hey, thanks for having me, Wayne. So let's dive into IoT. Uh, you're one of the few people I know that's combined a uh, deep interest and knowledge of data with the Internet of Things. For a lot of us, IoT seems relevant for perhaps a couple of industries like manufacturing. Uh, so the question is, does it have a more broad-based application? Should every data and analytics manager uh, be aware of what's happening there and be ready? So I would argue that the Internet of Things is the biggest market expansion since the Internet itself. And it affects everybody, everything on the planet. So let's first sort of divvy these up into two characteristics. One is the manufacturers of devices, and those people definitely are in. In fact, they've been into the sensor data collection and and usage for 10, 20, 30 years. The owner-operators, however, are the people that buy those machines, and those owner-operators also have a stake in that data. So what looks like a manufacturing business really turns out to be everybody because an owner-operator, think about your own ownership of a car. Does Ford and BMW and GM, do they own the data or do you own the data in your car? Well, that gets interesting. Does your service manual people, the people that that repair your car, do they own the data or or do they at least have access to it? So there's certainly a, a big battle brewing over data ownership and the manufacturers have the inside track. But the smart cities uh, governments have their opinion about who owns the traffic data and who owns all the things going on in their smart city. So let's put this in perspective. In 2019, International Data Corporation is saying that the Internet of Things is a $745 billion business. $745 billion. The relational database business, which powers most of analytics, is a $35 billion business. 745 versus 35. Think about that a minute. Now, it is dominated by manufacturing. Almost $200 billion of that spend is from manufacturers, discrete and process. 
But next comes transportation. So the trucking companies and the airlines, they're in with $71 billion. And the utilities, the people that do the uh, gas and electric and telephone lines and whatever, these people have $78 billion. Now, those are the big players. And that's a lot of money. But if you look at the growth industries, the growth is in insurance. Insurance is almost 17% annual growth. Government, uh, I mentioned smart cities earlier, but it's more than that. So they've got a 16% annual growth, and healthcare is 15% growth. So insurance and, and government and healthcare, uh, what are they doing? Well, you mentioned earlier, people are wearing some of the sensors. Government, we talked about smart cities. Certainly, it also has military applications. And we'll get back to insurance later when we talk about automobiles, but think about fleet management and collisions. Okay. So last, let's just quick do a check on how much IT is spending. The IT community is spending in 2019 $258 billion on professional services. Again, a little bigger than the database market, right? And then on IoT software, $154 billion. You're scratching your head and going, where do these numbers come from? Well, remember that the manufacturers, the transportation companies, the utilities, uh, the oil and gas people, they've been doing sensor data analysis and, and gathering data for 40 years. So a lot of it's already embedded out there, but it's expanding very rapidly. So... There's opportunity in almost every industry. It's just how you're going to deal with the data. Are you the owner operator? Are you the manufacturer? And where do you fit in the picture? So I can't imagine hundreds of billions of dollars being made from selling like sensors, right? So we must be talking about software and more particularly uh, aggregate solutions, right? Business solutions that interpret that uh, sensor data and, and do things. You know, Monsanto helps farmers understand what's yeah. going on in their fields. Yeah, Mon Monsanto is working with John Deere on what's called precision ag agriculture. And basically when the, uh, the, the harvester planter machines go down through and, and harrow the uh, the furrows and put the uh, insert the seeds. They they actually send a sensor down to measure the alkalinity and the moisture where they're planting it, and they inject w enough water to take care of that seed. I mean the the precision is unbelievable, and they're doubling and quadrupling the yield per acre. So Monsanto's involved in that. Uh, John Deere. I mean lots of agricultural vendors are doing that. So so that's where the money is, right? Coming up with uh, incredible solutions like that that can you know, double, triple, quadruple your output. That That's where the value of IoT is, yeah. Absolutely, hmm. absolutely. So let's bring this back to like our space, the IT field, uh, you know, the profession of data and analytics. Uh, we're the folks who have to ingest all this data. And in my reckoning, it's just gonna completely overhaul uh, all of our architectures or destroy it first before we overhaul it. So what are we supposed to do to get ready for this onslaught? Well, we'll get more to that a little bit later in our podcast, but you know, what we have to first understand is what's the front end of the architecture. So the back end is the analytic systems, and we know how to do that, but we're gonna to have to learn some new tricks. On the front end is something called the edge, and that's where the devices are. That's where the utility poles and the smart buildings and the trucks and all the airplanes and things are out there, the, the wind turbines, they're out in the wild. So the edge is getting computers. They're getting small gateway servers. 
small uh, Dell and Cisco servers that you know have a small atom processor, maybe eight gigs of memory, a small SSD. But their job is to manage the sensor data coming in, gather it, and react in real time if they need to. And so that gathering and shipment of the data goes into the next platform, which is the IoT platform. That's a big application that basically does device management. It gathers the incoming streams of data. So, you know, you may have hundreds and hundreds of streams coming in just in one farm or in, in one wind, wind farm, uh, and it might have 50 or 70 wind farms. So the point is you're going to see a lot of streaming data and device management. And oftentimes this application has some embedded analytics in it. So typically they have predictive analytics, you know, when is this thing going to fail? When do we have to get the repairman out there? So all of that data coming off the edge into the IoT platform goes into the analytic systems eventually. Now, a lot of customers get confused. They say, well, I already have this predictive analytics in my uh, application, my IoT platform, but it's not the depth and strength of the back-end analytics. It's really not that sophisticated, but it's useful. So this is uh, we're fitting into a larger architecture. And I think it's important to understand that the edge or out in the wild, you know, where the where the farm equipment is, where the where the wind turbines are, where the automobiles are, um, those are full scale computers out there. And what we need to do in our architecture is recognize that they have the same problems that we do back in the data center. They need to filter data, compress data, secure the data, all those things. But the ultimate picture here is the architecture needs to optimize the workload and data placement between the cloud and the edge to meet the edge-related requirements. So now I've got data out in the wild, I've got data in the data center, I've got data in the data analytics environment, and we need to optimize across all of this, place the data in the right places. So are you really talking more about doing analytics in the right place, kind of like the old client-server days where we'd push processing to the optimal layer of the architecture, whether it's the client, the application server, or the data server. Now we're talking about edge, data center, or you know, data warehouse, data lake environments. Yeah, that's definitely definitely what's happening now. There was a a a rush to put all kinds of analytics out in the wild, which turned out to not be that brilliant of an idea, but it was fun, particularly yeah. the, for the people that had Raspberry Pis and Arduino devices. That they, oh boy, I can code anything in, you know, five megabytes of storage. Um, so the point is, is that, yes, we will see analytics move to the edge. We will see some analytics in the IoT platform. And then we'll have the deep dive analytics, you know, the, the holistic big picture will still stay with the data warehouse and the data lake. Right, right. Well, analytics at the edge, I think, makes sense. I mean, you think about your automobile, right? That's kind of a a mobile computer uh, at this point, right? It's got hundreds of sensors in it. You would probably want some analytics right there. There's a lot of analytics going in, going into modern cars already. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we're seeing analytics going to the edge. Where do you think um, uh, most of the analytics will happen then? Um, or is it just a matter of the type of analytics? Like if you want to aggregate the data historically and look through it, that's going to happen in the kind of systems that we build, right? Data warehouses and data lakes. Right. Well, the, the edge devices really have small, you know, SSDs, maybe 250 gigabytes. There's just so much you can do with that. And you may have a small farm full of gateway edge servers, but 
uh, they, they're not going to be running Hadoop or parallel databases. So right. um, you want to use those edge systems only to have real-time reactions. So if you know a certain circumstance, okay, you know, if the machine's overheating, let's push a button on the machine and, you know, automatically stop that overheating condition. It's real-time reaction. So it's very much like the human body. It's like, you know, when your finger gets hot, you pull it back, you get it out of the fire. But after that, your brain, which is the back-end service, has to think its way through, well, what did I do? Why, why did I do that? How can I prevent doing it again? So it's a very it's, – sensors come from senses, right? The idea of, of the five senses of the human body. So very simple analogy. Right. All right. Well, what should a data warehousing or data lake manager then know about IoT and what should they be doing? thinking about and doing to their data warehouses and data lakes to prepare for this tsunami? Okay, well, the first thing to understand is that the data by itself is valuable, the sensor data, you can do cool things with it, but its value increases exponentially when you add it to the data warehouse. So when you add the sensor data to your service histories, your inventory locations, your prices, your traffic patterns, all of a sudden it blossoms into ROI that's really fabulous. So your data lake and your data warehouse, you know, better step up and do the do the job of making this happen. But you're not gonna store all of that IoT data there, right? Because it's just too voluminous. I mean, don't you really wanna aggregate it at a certain level and then push it into the warehouse? I wouldn't aggregate it so much as I would store the majority of it in a data lake and pull it into the warehouse on demand or as needed. If you know you're going to need it every day, then pull in a couple gigabytes or tens of gigabytes. Yeah. But you're right. You don't want to put all the sensor data in there because most of it's worthless. Right. Right. So maybe maybe you don't even aggregate it. Maybe you just pull out the anomalies, right, or the exceptions. And whatever people are looking for at the moment, yes. Okay, so you're going to need some federated queries between your warehouse and your lake and possibly elsewhere. Um, so, you know, your your high volume will certainly go quick into the data lake, but the data lake's not going to combine it with the inventory and the pricing and the sales figures and all that. So you still need these two subsystems to work together. Now, what we people need to understand is this is time series data. This is a new form of unstructured data. And you can think of stock market prices changing 20 to 100 times a day, that little sawtooth wave that you see on your stock uh, uh, ticker. Well, if you visualize that sawtooth, what it is, it's a date timestamp, a sensor ID, and an array of measurements. And that's where things get scary because the array is not compatible with SQL. The whole notion of I'm going to have anywhere from 50 to maybe 500 little uh, floating point measurements, and the only thing I've really got up front is a timestamp and, and an ID. So this array that's coming in from this one sensor uh, arrives into the system, and it's a completely different kind of data and different kinds of analytics. Now, be very careful. Being timestamped is not time series data. People get that confused. Now, What's changing, though, is that there's some new database technologies coming up. There's an open source or, or independent startup called InfluxDB. Um, my alma mater, Teradata, put something into their database to extend it to the time series data. Now, if you look on the DB Engine's ranking site, there's really only 28 time series startups. 
And those, it overlooks the relational database vendors and what they're doing. So pick your favorite relational database vendor and say, what are you doing to have time buckets that I can put this sensor data in? Because I really can't just string it out with a massive index. I'm going to have to think of ways to organize it for faster retrieval and minimal complexity. Now, the other thing that people, the database administrator has to understand is when he's working with his data scientists and his end users, the data uh, needs to be correlated. So I have a machine, or maybe I have a temperature uh, measurement of zero to 300 degrees on the machine. Maybe I have some fans that are moving anywhere between 1,800 and 2,100 uh, cubic feet per minute of air through the machine. Maybe I have some uh, measurement of acidity and water that we're using, and it's got a 0.015 down to a minus 0.015 acidity. That's the level that it has to be between. When you try to correlate these, these are completely dissimilar measurements. You can't add them. You can't subtract them. You can't even compare them. And so you need new kinds of analytics that say, all right, how do I know that the waveforms that these guys are creating are passing some le some limits? And by the way, three of them happened at the same time. That's when I'm worried. I'm not worried when I have uh, the temperature go a little high every now and then. But if I've got three of them happening, happening simultaneously, three problems, this may be the reason the machine's malfunctioning. So it's a new kind of correlation, and it's, it's comparing very dissimilar kinds of data. Now, there are algorithms for doing these kinds of things. The first algorithm you need to learn is something called shapelets. And it takes that sawtooth wave, and it sort of smooths out the curves so that you can begin to make these comparisons. And then you get uh, admired in algorithms you don't understand, and, and I don't want to understand. I'm not a mathematician, but ARIMA and Kalman filters, exponential smoothing. And the one I always laugh at is Dickie Fuller. Whoever Dickie and Fuller were, they did some really cool algorithms. These are algorithms you will not find in your typical pack of statistics. And in many cases, the people that are doing time series analysis don't even know about them either. So you're going to have to find the algorithms that fit your data. Uh, that's something that the database administrator and the data science people need to work together on. Now, you mentioned it earlier, um, particularly data at the edge. You know, we just have 250 gigs of SSD. You know, what do we do? Do we ship it in off hours to the data center? Um, can we afford the network costs for that? And when do we delete it? Because we really can't keep it out there at the edge for very long. If your industry is heavily regulated, like the airlines and the manufacturers of cars, then you know you need safety data, you need pollutant data. Uh, you're going to need to keep it for one to seven years, and it's arriving in real-time streams in most cases. And so, consequently, you've got a data lake application right there, sitting, staring at you. Uh, I do know one friend uh, at an air, airline manufacturer who's got about three petabytes of, of airline data just on his data lake. Now, if we delete the data, Murphy's Law says that's the data that would that caused our major financial loss. So we kind of have to think our way through how we're going to deal with this. And I would recommend compression. Now, a couple of years ago, I think it was about a year and a half ago, Dr. Richard Hackathorn and I wrote a paper with uh, one of their, their chief uh, IT fellows at Boeing. Um, they were taking the data from the flight data recorder, the infamous black box, which is really orange. And they were putting it in a data lake and then feeding 
snippets of data to the data warehouse for their workloads. And what he managed to do was he took uh, a situation where the data was voluminous and had 80 times compression. Now think about that. The typical database does four times compression. A columnar system can usually get its top capability at eight times compression. This is 80 times. And this sped up his queries 600 times because it wasn't reading very much data. And I'll tell you the secret. The secret was that the data, because it's in that array, you basically don't have to keep it all. You just delete it. And so if the temperature reading says it's 72 degrees, beep, it's 72 degrees, beep, and it does that all day for four days, and then it's 72.1 degrees, you don't have to keep four days worth of data. You just have to keep timestamps in the data that says this is where it stopped being 72 degrees, went up one-tenth of a degree. And so you can delete all this useless data. And this is not a new technique. I mean, EMC used it in their, their disk array controllers for years. And so it's basically just deleting data that's repetitive. And you get these incredible compressions that allow you to manage the data uh, under the data lake and the data warehouse. I, I have one question, though. I mean, why would we want to bring all this stuff even into a data lake, which obviously can store a lot of data? If this data is so repeating like this, why don't we just analyze it in the stream itself as it's coming in, which is something that also has been done for a while. Um, it used to be called complex event processing. And they would like take windows of the stream and be able to process that and and then even compare it to historical data that might be in the warehouse. So you never really have to land this streaming data unless you want to keep it for historical purposes. Well, we mentioned uh, the audit and regulatory circumstance earlier. So a lot of government regulations say you're going to keep this data whether you want it or not. Uh, secondarily, um, the compression allows you to have all the data you need in your data lake or your data warehouse uh, by using this alternative technique to compression. So why do you need it? Well, you need it because you don't know in advance where all the deep dive analytics will actually occur. And like everything else, um, for example, we've seen a lot of customers who benchmark multiple uh, machines. So I know one customer, they, they have this machine, it's 100 yards long and it's about 18 feet high. It's a giant machine. They sell them all over the world and they're benchmarking their customers to see which machines are working uh, best, trying to figure out what is about that machine that, that we can duplicate with our other customers, make them happy. And so the consequence is that's a lot of data to look at, you know, 1,400, 2,000 customers. They each have three machines. They each have 8,000 sensors. You add it all up, and you're trying to figure out what's the best way to design this machine and the best way to service it for my client. You're not going to do that by throwing away the data or using CEP. CEP is really just a moment in time. It's, it's a question of, well, what do I know right at this moment? Yeah, but I think we're seeing a lot of innovation happen on the streaming side uh, where you can combine streams, you can compare windows across streams within a stream to even historical data in a warehouse. Well, let's go back to the human body. The human body, the fingers know when, they're, when they experience electricity or, or fire. And so that's your CEP environment. But 
why did that happen? And how do I look at this from the big picture? That's the cognitive part. And that's the stepping back in the big data analytics. Right. No, no, I agree. Let's talk a little bit about autonomous vehicles. I, I remember reading or hearing about how some automobile executives went down to the Consumer Electronics Show, and they came back realizing they had made a big mistake, which was they had outsourced all their in-car computing systems and data to the software vendors, and they realized they had probably given away you know, their whole livelihood. And now I think they're racing to, to get all that stuff back, and, and they realize that data is the future of their business. Well, I happen to know quite a few auto manufacturers, uh, their plans and what they've been doing. Um, I would point to Toyota and Volvo and a few others that never gave up their data and, and have really fought their way through this by themselves. Um, and I also have a very good uh, venture capitalist friend who specializes in big data for the connected car. So we have beers every few months and chat about this stuff. So let's let's sort of put this in perspective. Your connected car, your your current models that are rolling off the line have about 50 million lines of code in them. They have about 20 networks and 50 computers. You're scratching your head and going, holy moly, what are they doing? Well, they're doing this advanced driver assistance systems. So these are the things where there's the automatic braking. You know, you're not paying attention and the, and the car says, wait a minute. You know, the radar is telling me we're getting a little fast, too close. And it slows you down and sort of blinks at you and says, what are we doing here? Okay, I just saved your life. Same thing with you start swerving out of your lane. Um, there's a lot of features where people are now doing parallel parking without actually you know, holding the steering wheel. And so the cars are starting to move in this direction where they've got all this compute power. So this is a four-ton iPhone, if you want to look at it that way. This is a very busy compute environment, very heavy. Uh, it's got infotainment. It's got everything. So 50 million lines of code, that's about 10 million less than Facebook. Google Chrome is 5 million lines of code. Okay, so you look at that and you go, that's an incredible amount of software in that machine. So the manufacturers, I can assure you, are working on all kinds of things. Uh, for example, you know, they, they have warranty and recalls. They certainly care about predictive maintenance. Uh, the hot area is fleet optimization and insurance. You look at companies like Volvo. They have uh, 10 years ago, they completely revamped their IT organization's handling of the data for the design, the research and design. So one of the most advanced machines on the market is, in fact, a Volvo because of all of this intensity around using the data to create the next generation machine. So if we look at autonomous cars, where are we? Well, in 2018, there were some accidents. And there was actually one death of one pedestrian, which, of course, made the news all over the country and possibly around the world. So some milestones have also been passed and not achieved. So, you know, a lot of promises were made for the last three or four years, and they didn't happen. So the self-driving cars, uh, the mainstream media overhyped it, and this, you know, just felt felt like the typical euphoria. And it created unrealistic expectations, both in the customers and in the insurance companies and in the, the manufacturers. So they're now all pulling back and saying, wait a second, we, we can't, you know, we can't do everything at once. Now, the tipping point for autonomous cars was originally forecast for 2025, and that was when 10% of the cars were expected to be autonomous. 
But reality has set in, and the journalists are having to tone it down. The biggest impact here is going to come on fleet operators like Hertz and Avis, the city taxis and Uber and Lyft, because they are the incumbents when it comes to managing fleets. You know, Ford and GM and Mercedes, they don't have reservation systems, nor do they have the maintenance of the vehicles. They've outsourced all that to the, the franchise dealers. And so the consequence is that the real battle here is for big data by the fleets. And so the, the rental cars, of course, have, a, have an edge, and they're scrambling, trying to say, where do we fit in this? And the manufacturers, you know, Ford, um, Hyundai, you know, uh, Honda, and all these folks, they're basically saying AI is not getting enough progress for us to take the step into autonomous. So all of this yelling about autonomous that's gone on for the last four or five years is now switching to something called automatic cars. And this is what we were talking about earlier with ADAS braking, assisted braking, the parallel parking. And, you know, so we're going to see annual releases of these automatic features that don't scare the public to death and let them ease into wanting the next model with these new features without this fear and without a lot of worry about you know what happens next. Knowing AI like I do at this point, it's there's way too many variables on the road for a autonomous vehicle to to handle safely. Well, some of them have been running around San Francisco and other uh, licensed locations yeah. already. They've been ap operating as taxis, and so people have been sitting in them and going. Uh, you know, they they tend to go a little slow, <laughs> but the novelty doesn't wear off that fast. Well, there's other kinds too. There's these little people movers that, that run around to park benches and pick up old people, take them shopping, and bring them back. They're they're much more like little people movers. Um, there's different kinds of things going on, but uh, I think the public fear is reasonable. Uh, I think that, that it's going to take a little while before people let go of their steering wheel. You know, it's going to be over my dead body. You take my steering wheel for a lot of folks, and that's okay. Um, but the real thing here is is not what people think as much as, you know, the machine has to work. And and it, when it does, I think people will adopt it. Let, let me give you a different scenario. I want the autonomous car tomorrow. I have an 85-year-old mother who's who's losing sight in one eye, can't pass her driving test. That's one segment. Then, of course, I have very young nephews uh, that about the age of 20 with car keys and a, and a pint of whiskey can get into a lot of trouble. So there's lots of reasons why we want this, but we can't really rush into it because the technology has to be there. No, I, I think the way it's evolving makes a lot of sense if you look at the history of automation. Automation's always come about as a way to uh, assist humans not replace them. Uh, so I, oh, I, I do think these fears of AI taking our jobs are, um, are over-exaggerated. So having you know, cars that can park themselves or brake automatically uh, makes a lot of sense to me. That, that's how automation has always been used over uh, time. Uh, whether it makes the final leap to replacing human drivers, that will be for another generation. I hope it's soon, and I don't, don't count out innovators. Well, listen, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, very insightful as always. Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe. 
If you want more content from business intelligence to data management to data science, browse to the Eckerson Group website at eckerson.com.